Welcome to Authentic. Hi, I am Dr. Greg Ammons, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Garland. And welcome to the podcast, where we discuss various aspects of the Christian faith, relating theological truths from God's Word to practical topics of the Christian life, living daily for Jesus Christ in a real, genuine, and authentic way. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Dr. Greg Ammons, and I am delighted that you have joined me today as I talk about different aspects of the Christian faith as we do in this authentic podcast. Glad that you joined us, and I'm following up on a sermon series that I preached recently at the First Baptist Church of Garland, a series entitled Asking for a Friend. In that sermon series, I took questions of different topics that people may have Maybe they did not want to ask a preacher or a minister or a believer. Maybe they were too embarrassed. And I looked at some of those. And now I'm following up in these podcasts with the same line of thinking. Maybe some questions you have about topics of the Christian faith or about the Bible that you really did not want to ask, but you've always wondered the answers to. And so far I've looked at five questions concerning heaven, five questions concerning salvation, in these podcasts and in the future I will be looking at uh, five questions concerning other issues and other topics. Today I'm looking at five questions concerning lifestyle issues. Five questions that you may have or people may have about lifestyle issues and what Christians believe about these or what I believe about them. Now, I want to qualify, first of all today, these these responses to these five questions in telling you that I'm just basically kind of touching the hem of the garment of of all of these. These are very complex issues, and and, uh, they're much deeper in what I can do in just a few minutes answering each one. So I want to tell you what I believe about these and why. But if you want to contact me for more information or to follow up with something maybe I said or taught in, in this podcast, you are more than welcome to do that. Drop me an email, gregA at fbcgarland.org. If you can't remember that, just simply go to our website, First Baptist Church of Garland, and I will be delighted to, uh, to respond back to you. All email comes directly to me. So I'll be glad to respond back to you if you have further questions uh, than, than just what I gave you today concerning these lifestyle issues. So let's get into them. Five questions concerning some current lifestyle issues. First question, number one, what about the Bible and transgenderism? What does the Bible say about gender identity or transgenderism? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches us that God created human beings, either male or female, Genesis 1.27 tells us that, God designed us so that our gender should align with our biological sex. So when we attempt to nullify or suppress God's design, I believe that's where a lot of frustration and failure comes in. Even though doctors might mutilate a person's body to conform to that person's preference, Our God-given gender identities are not pliable or interchangeable. We are designed beings. The Bible makes it very clear. We are designed beings. And so no matter how hard we try to suppress God's design, I don't think we really can. 
Now, the biggest claim of the transgender movement today is, is that a man who thinks he's a woman can really become a woman and vice versa. You see this in many ways, uh, from preferred pronouns that are used or sex reassignment surgeries that are conducted and demands to use the restroom of perceived rather than given gender. You, you see that in society now uh, very common. The problem is that this is a really a philosophical claim, never really a true claim in any way or form. A man's chromosomes cannot be engineered into female chromosomes. Altering one's appearance cosmetically or surgically really does not change the underlying reality of a person's biological makeup. The psychology of, of the mind really cannot override the facts of a person's biological markers. If being a man or a woman is determined by someone's mind or will, it means that there's no such thing as true maleness, really, or, or femaleness. Both become just a construct based on cultural stereotypes or things like that, and, and we really would be unable to tell a young boy, you're a boy. Uh, and so, but, but God's design really is, is totally different. Now, the Christian worldview uh, is one that acknowledges that creation has, has been disrupted and is not the way it once was, nor how it eventually will be in the new creation, Genesis 3, Romans 8, Revelation 21. No part of our existence in the universe has, has been left undisturbed by sin's effects. So, I think it's important to, to bring up uh, in, the, in this this answering this question concerning transgenderism is because all of creation was affected by the fall in Genesis 3. No part of our existence in the universe has been left undisturbed by sin. And so that means that the brokenness of creation reaches into every corner of our lives, into our minds, into our hearts, um, to the same degree every human is made in God's image. So to differing degrees and in different ways, every human struggles with this brokenness. We have broken bodies. We have broken desires. We have broken minds. We have broken thoughts. And to the same degree, every human can find their true identity by recognizing that God, the God who made them, has also saved them and will one day restore them from this brokenness. Now let me delve a little further into the, the, the question of, of transgender and, and the Bible. The transgender label uh, reflects a sexual identity, confusion, uh, and, and a lot of Christian theologians say it's not really a true condition, but a sexual identity confusion. God does not create a person with the genitals of a male and the consciousness and the heart of a female. Scripture never tells us that God does that. Uh, in Genesis 1, 26, the Bible says, God created man in His image, in His likeness, male and female. He created them, and it was very good. Uh, in addition, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of peace. Uh, so deliberately creating someone with self-contradiction 
appears to go against the very nature of God. Why would God create someone, place them into a body that confuses them, frustrates them, and is wrong? Personally, in my mind, a person who says I need to have a sex change because I'm, I'm trapped in a body that I'm, uh, that's not who I am, basically saying God made a mistake. God didn't do right by me. He, uh, he, 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 I know more than He does. And so therefore, I need to correct His mistake and I need to have my sex changed. Uh, so to me, that's just simply saying that God made a mistake and I need to correct it. Now, I believe Scripture teaches that it's very clear maleness and femaleness are God's choice. That is determined at conception. But growing into masculinity or femininity and embracing it, maybe that's thwarted by very early events that prevent children from having a clear sense of who they are. So maybe, maybe it has something to do with events in their life rather than how God had created them. Now, the biblical view is that God's intent for every male is to grow into masculinity and every female to grow into femininity. And when that doesn't happen, the culture has come up with new labels to describe something new and different, transgender or transsexual. But I believe God is not affected by those labels, nor does He really honor them, to to be honest with you. I think He sees the people behind those labels He sees them as precious, maybe broken children, maybe hurting children. But he sees them not by the label transgender, transsexual. He sees them for the person that they are, the person that he created. And it's only recently that the culture has tried to suggest that a person is a woman in a man's body or a man in a woman's body or something like that. Only recently has has that kind of come to the forefront of expressing it to the point of doing something to correct what they feel is something God uh, made a mistake on. Sue Bolin uh, of Probe Ministries recently shared that she went to a national, it's called National Exodus Conference. It was a gathering of about 900 people who were walking out of the homosexual lifestyle and, and a conference of those who were coming out of that and a conference of those who ministered to them. And she said it was interesting to see people there who would call themselves transgendered or transsexuals who had had a, a sex change surgery. They were at the conference because of a growing awareness, Sue said, that had interfered with God's plan for their lives. God had revealed His intent for their gender at, at birth. They had been living as the opposite sex in a false self that was tragically far from what God intended. And that explained why the great pains to which they had gone to fix their brokenness did not bring them peace, did not bring them relief that they thought that it would, having the new identity or the new surgery would. So, she really made a good point in this conference that she attended and she wrote about that. Uh, in, in what's called in, uh, probe ministries. To summarize, uh, uh, men are, Deuteronomy 22.5, 22, men are to act and appear as men, women are to appear and act as women. Even those born with genital ambiguity, 
I believe, are expected to submit to God's boundaries as to how He has made us and created us. And I realize this is a very, maybe possibly a politically incorrect perspective in a sex-saturated culture that declares sexual expression as a right for everybody. But I believe God wants every person, regardless of their genital or, or chromosomal condition, to submit to His or her sexuality for them that He has created at birth and to glorify Him in whatever state they find themselves. All right, question number two. Now, this one may be a little shorter answer, but, but let's look at it. Lifestyle issue number two. What about cremation? Is it wrong for a believer in Jesus to be cremated at their death? Now, a lot of Christians have struggled with this, and, and I want to share with you a few brief thoughts in, in answering this question. Historically, cremation has not been a part of the Christian tradition. Now, early Jews, early Christians, to them, cremation was, was not an option. It was something that they never even considered. Now, in, in biblical days, uh, cremation was practiced. It was practiced very early, uh, but there's no biblical mandate that's prohibiting it. So I find it interesting that cremation has been practiced through the years, thousands of years, but the Bible gives no biblical mandate either saying it's okay or, or prohibiting it either way. Now, views have changed, I believe, over the years. And, and as I said, in biblical times, cremation was practiced in Israel. Um, in New Testament times, it was practiced then as well. Israelites did not practice it. New Testament believers did not practice cremation. But nowhere does the Bible command it uh, or uh, 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 condemn it, I guess you might say. The Bible does not give us specific directions for the disposal of the body when it dies. Um, Unger's Bible Dictionary, very well respected, states, quote, Interment in the Bible followed soon after death, uh, as is evident in the narratives of the burial of Sarah in Genesis 23, Rachel in Genesis 35, and Rebekah's nurse in Genesis 35, 8. The Hebrews did not normally create, or rather, uh, the Hebrews did not normally cremate except in most unusual cases of emergency, such was the case of Saul and his sons, 1 Samuel 31, end quote. That's, that's from Unger's Bible Dictionary. Now later, Babylonians burned their dead, deposited their ashes in these very ornate uh, urns, as did Greeks and Romans. And Hebrews in, in latter times, uh, indicated by the numerous ossuaries found in the New Testament Palestine, they also practiced uh, cremation. Now, I believe that Christians will want to show respect for the body, uh, even though the essential person or spirit, the Holy Spirit, actually their, their spirit, has, uh, has exited the body, the spirit of a believer. They've moved on to their eternal destiny with, with Jesus, as the Bible tells us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The body is a tangible reminder of all that person meant. That, that is true. And in addition, the body is destined for resurrection. Uh, we know that certainly true being taught in 1 Corinthians. 
So, whether burial or cremation, either one best expresses that appropriate respect, that's a very personal decision for a family. I, I, don't, I don't see that, that a family is wrong if they do not choose cremation or if they're wrong for choosing cremation because the Bible doesn't say one way or the other. The wishes of, of close family members and friends should be considered perhaps uh, because they're the ones who will live with the decision and the memories uh, but I believe that these are decisions that need to be made before a person passes away. Now, some people have asked, well, Pastor, if a person is cremated, doesn't that affect the resurrection, the final resurrection? When Jesus returns and people from the graves are lifted out of the graves and they're to meet the Lord in the air, uh, doesn't that prevent that from happening, a cremation? Well, I don't think it does any more than a person being lost at sea. What if a believer is lost at sea and the body's never found? What if they're lost in the ocean and, and the body's never found? That does not prevent the Lord Jesus from resurrecting that body and taking it to heaven. What if, an, what if a person is in a, in a fire, in a building, in a fire, an accident, plane crash, a fire, and, and the body is simply incinerated? That does not keep Jesus from resurrecting that body at the final resurrection? What if they're in, what if they're in, in a war or an accident and the body is in, in, in not a good shape or condition, um, just much like cremation it would be? That does, not, that does not prevent Jesus from resurrecting that body. There's nothing in Scripture that says the condition of the body is contingent upon Jesus resurrecting it. Remember, He created us from ashes anyway, from dirt. And so He can take any form we're in, formulate us again into a resurrected body to be with Him forever in heaven. And the state of the body at the time He does that doesn't matter. So at the resurrection, it's not going to make any difference whether a person's body has been buried or whether it's been cremated. God knows how to raise the body either in the resurrection of life or the resurrection of condemnation. John 5 tells us 28, verses 28-29. The new body of a Christian will be radically changed and we will have a glorified body of the exalted Christ in heaven. So, to summarize, uh, cremation began as a pagan tradition and burial as a Christian tradition. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. That's just tradition. So, because of that, that belief is carried on today where some people believe that cremation is pagan, burial is Christian. But there's nothing in Scripture that says that. So, I don't think there's anything wrong scripturally with the person being cremated rather than being buried. All right, question number three. Lifestyle question number three. What about a Christian undergoing hypnosis, maybe to treat addictions or for some other medical condition? Is it okay for a Christian to undergo hypnosis? Well, this is really a great question. Now, first of all, what is hypnosis? And, and there are very aspects, varying aspects of hypnosis. Let's look at some of these. Hypnosis is a process by which critical thinking is diminished and internal visualization, visualization is, is enhanced, greatly heightened. And this has been used to decrease the sensation of pain. It's been used to 
the desire for an addiction to treat that, uh, as well as the subconscious reaction that leads to fear. It's been used to treat that. But it's basically your critical thinking being diminished and an internal visualization being heightened. Uh, this has been used in entertainment to temporarily convince people of things that aren't true and things like that. But there are different types of hip hypnosis. First of all, there's the traditional hypnosis. That's when a hypnotist puts a person into an alternate state that opens them up to commands. And this is the kind you often see in entertainment, things like that. But there's a second kind called hypnotherapy. Hypnotherapy is when a hypnotist puts a person into a trance and attempts maybe to overcome some problem. This has been used to conquer fears. Uh, hypnotherapy has been used for weight loss. Hypnotherapy has been used to quit smoking or to, to, uh, to break an addiction of some kind. Uh, therapy is not successful unless the person fully commits to the hypnosis. And so this is hypnotherapy. Now, self-hypnosis is very similar to meditation. The person is trained by a hypnotist to put himself or herself into an alternate state and reinforce uh, certain thoughts to overcome a problem. Maybe reinforce thoughts to eat where you lose weight or not to smoke a cigarette or not to take drugs or, or things like that. Now, there's another type of hypnosis I'll just briefly mention, and this is called covert hypnosis. That is using conversation to hypnotize somebody without them knowing it. Maybe if you watch the television show The Mentalist, uh, that, that's the kind that's used on the, on the television show. Covert hypnosis, sometimes used by therapists on people who are skeptical of hypnosis in general, and uh, it's touted as a way to control people. So that, that is covert hypnosis. Now, it has been described that being hypnotized is, is kind of like downloading a file without running it through a firewall and an antivirus program first. It removes the filter of critical thinking and the independence of decision making. Critical thinking is open wide, decision making is handed over to the hypnotizer or a predetermined set of ideas. And core beliefs are still there, but you don't have the virus scanner. So they can be gradually altered or affected. And I think that illustration of the antivirus program of the firewall is, is really a pretty good analogy. The stated goal of hypnotherapy is to implant images and memories that help people overcome some kind of hardship. When a smoker thinks of a cigarette, maybe the image of pride for having quit smoking overtakes the image of the desire. Uh, when someone is afraid of water or, or getting out of a boat and they have an image of peace instead of the Im image of nearly drowning when they were a younger child, then that fear is overcome. And so th that's kind of how hypnotism works. Now, what about hypnotism and the Bible? There's been a lot of talk about Christians and hypnosis about that opening the mind to demonic influence. Uh, we don't know how that works exactly, but, but I do believe it is possible. Whenever your critical thinking and decision-making skills are turned off 
and your eternal imagination cranked up, I believe absolutely you're more susceptible to lies, to deception. You're more susceptible to harmful influences. You're, you're perhaps less susceptible to the Holy Spirit's leading and influence. And so I do believe this would seem to be a ripe time for a demonic attack. In fact, 1 Peter 5.8 warns us um, we need to be self-controlled, making our own decisions and alert, thinking critically, so we're protected against the enemy. Be vigilant. Be alert, Paul writes, because your enemy the, 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 is, roar, is like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. And hypnosis has long been associated with the occult. There's no doubt about that. And and wanting to reach out to evil spirits. That, that has long been tried and, and used in that type of realm hypnosis has. Now, this may even explain uh, startling detailed memories that people wouldn't normally have. That's recorded Acts 16, verses 16 to 18. It's also interesting to note how critical thinking and decision-making skills Guard what comes into your mind in light of Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, whenever we put the guards to sleep, our hearts are left undefended, which directly influences our actions. And if the hypnotist is working for our benefit, uh, the risk of danger is, is phenomenal. So I think we really need to be, be careful of that. The Bible validates this. Galatians 5, and 23 mentions we need to control ourselves, not give control over to someone else. Romans 6, 12, and 13 says we need to submit ourselves to God, not to someone else. Romans 6, 16 warns against submitting our decisions to others. And so, despite maybe a lot of success stories you hear, I'm skeptical because you're, you're turning your mind, controlling it, that control of your mind, over to someone else. So, personally, I, I'm just skeptical of, of uh, Christians using hypnosis. All right, lifestyle question number four. What about genetic engineering? Is it wrong, do you believe, for Christian scientists to engage in genetic engineering? Now, first of all, I'm inadequate to deal with a lot of this. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a geneticist. I'm a theologian. And so let me answer the question from the viewpoint of, of a theologian. There's a lot that's contained in the term genetic engineering. Are we talking about the kind of experiments that were made famous during World War II to carry out uh, unbelievable, the unbelievable diabolical plans of Hitler to create a master race through purifying genes? Well, absolutely, that is clearly evil. No doubt, absolutely. That kind of genetic engineering, definitely evil. But what about genetic engineering that involves serious research doing everything in their power by examining the genetic code to see if there are ways in which serious illnesses or diseases or distortions 
can be therapeutically treated through genetic means. What about that? What, what about if you're curing diseases or curing cancer or genetic codes are altered to try to look at ways to, to, to use these for good? Well, I, I think that's a totally different question about genetic engineering. And, and I, so I don't think you can say all genetic engineering is necessarily evil, just from a theologian's perspective. Now, let me uh, consider this perspective further. Today, scientists are making huge strides in manipulating genes and doing some amazing things. And genetic engineering is not mentioned in the Bible, however. Uh, it is difficult to determine whether genetic engineering is within the parameters of God's will, uh, whether or not we believe that or not, because uh, God did give mankind dominion over the earth in Genesis 1, 26-30, absolutely. But did God intend this dominion, did He mean for that to manipulate the genes of living organisms? That's, that's the questions we don't really know. Even though He told Adam and Eve to subdue and rule over every living thing, which would necessarily include plants and animals, would this include genetic engineering? Some theologians say yes, some say maybe not. To keep and to cultivate the garden, that's not the same thing as manipulating it to his or her advantage, or is it? After the fall, things changed. We know that for certain. After the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned, mankind fell, things changed. It was no Garden of Eden after the fall. But does that give us permission to engineer plants and animals to our advantage. Well, I guess only time will tell. The creation does seem to be groaning under the weight of sin, according to Romans 8.28. So it's hard to say dogmatically that engineering, genetic engineering is wrong because the Bible's silent or that it's right because we have said A plus B equals C, so therefore it's got to be right. Now, a little further thoughts. Everything on the earth is intended for man's good. But in actuality, it is for God Himself that all of creation came to be. It's for His glory. It says in Colossians 1.16, For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and every, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. So even though we're told to have dominion over the earth in Genesis 2, we're only stewards and we're not owners of the earth. The fact that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, according to Psalms 24.1, and all those who dwell therein, we are not really our own. We're bought with a price, and the earth is the Lord's. We're stewards, but it's really His, and for His glory. So God has warned that all who transgress this will be punished. So, that's in Revelation eleven eighteen. So, how does all of that factor in? Since the human body of the believer is said to be the temple of God, we're not really our own. 
maybe we use caution in altering the genetic makeup of human beings. I think we absolutely do. We should be taking care of our bodies, Ephesians 5.29. But we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We know that from Psalm 139.4. And so genetically in altering our bodies, the psalmist really talked against that by saying, God formed the inward parts, knitted me together in my mother's womb, Psalm 139.13. So why do we mess with God's handiwork? Since God's hands made me and formed me, that should be good enough. And again, this is a theologian's perspective in looking at genetic engineering. All right, last question on the lifestyle issues that we'll consider in this podcast. What about euthanasia? What about mercy killing? What about taking your own life if you're suffering greatly? Let's say, for example, that an elderly couple, they're both nearing their their years. They've been married 60 years. They've been together their entire lives. They're both in poor health. They both don't have any children, no relatives to come after them. They both are nearing the end of their life. Would it be wrong for a physician to assist suicide to both of them so they can die together because they've lived their entire lives together? A lot of people look at this and say there would be nothing wrong with that. Is there anything wrong with a physician-assisted suicide or mercy killing in the eyes of God if it's a situation like that? Let me answer the question concerning uh, euthanasia. In general, Christians oppose euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide on the grounds that it invades God's territory of life and death. Now, this position is not universal, however, of course, but most Christians believe that that is wrong. Now, there are only two mentions of suicide in the Old Testament and one mention of suicide in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in the first instance, King Saul begged his servant to kill him, but the servant refused. So Saul took his own life and fell on his own sword in 1 Samuel 31.4. The servant then kills himself as well. In the second instance in the Old Testament, David's counselor, Ahithophel, hanged himself in 2 Samuel 17.23, but the Bible makes no comment and goes on. In the New Testament, there is one instance of suicide. I'm sure you probably know what that is. Judas Iscariot felt remorse for betraying Jesus and went and hanged himself. Matthew 27.3-5 records this. Now, what is interesting is the Bible does not comment on any of these three instances. It's been noted that none of the persons who committed suicide in the Bible are heroic figures. None of them are considered godly figures. None of them are sympathetic figures. None of them that took their own lives in Scripture. But the Bible does not comment on any of it. But it's very clear the Bible does not commend suicide or encourage suicide ever. Now my view on the subject of assisted suicide or euthanasia is is really pretty simple. 
I believe in the sanctity of life from the moment of conception until natural death. There are over 60 passages of Scripture in the Bible that relate to the sanctity of life. It begins with, Thou shalt not kill, and there are 60 passages. Ultimately, I believe God is the giver of life, and God is the taker of life. I believe that if a per, even if it's assisted suicide, and someone's late in life, they're in great pain, um, I believe even then that it is trying to play God. It is trying to do God's job for him. It's someone saying, Lord, you don't know best when I need to die, so I do. I'll take it in my own hands. You don't really know. I know it's best. And so I believe any form of euthanasia is telling God he doesn't know what he's doing. Now, some may ask some questions about this, and let let me answer some of those uh, hypothetical questions you may have. What about the argument that it's your own body? What about the argument everybody has a right to do with their own bodies they see fit? Well, I don't think that holds up. Because God is the one who gave you the body, and it's, it's not really your body. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear in, in the New Testament that if you're a believer, you're bought with a price, you're not your own. In 1 Corinthians, Paul states that. So your body is not really yours to do with. I know you hear that a lot in culture. It's my body, I can do what I want. It's not really your body. <laughs> it's, it's the one God gave you, and He owns it. Uh, and so if you're a believer especially, it's, it's not really your body. So uh, it's, it can, it, the right to die movement w- would change laws so that doctors and relatives and others could directly and intentionally end another person's life because it's their body and they chose to end it this way, whether it's a physician-assisted or, or not. But again, it's not really our bodies. Uh, I believe the, the Christian view is consistent with the Declaration of Independence, in fact. Our Creator has endowed us with certain unalienable rights, and among these is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Life is the first right, and without this one, any others would be without effect. So, I believe that that even the Declaration of Independence uh, is consistent with Scripture's view. You may ask the hypothetical question, well, Pastor, what about the quality of life? What if someone's quality of life is so poor that they, they just need to die. They just need to go on to be with the Lord. And the quality of life is so poor that it would just be better for everyone, including them, if they just died. And, and what would be wrong with taking their life? Well, let me quote Chuck Colson on this. Chuck Colson, Colson said, quote, One of our major problems as Americans today is that we want only the joy of life, but not the sorrow of life. Many of us mistakenly believe that life is life only as long as it's enjoyed. That life is life only when it is healthy and happy and comfortable. But God knows better. To make us whole, He makes sure that we experience 
every season of life, even the pain. Not only in the springtime of youth, but also the austerity of winter at the end of life. All of it is God's quality of life. End quote. That's stated very well by Chuck Colson. Listen to C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis remarked that the fullness of experience of life was so necessary to our souls that, quote, perpetual springtime is not allowed, end quote. So in other words, life is not just life when it's in the springtime of youth, but even in the austerity of winter, in those days whenever it seems like there's no purpose for living, God still has purpose and quality to your life. What about the hypothetical question in answering and trying to answer the question about euthanasia? What about the hypothetical question of pain? What if someone is in such severe pain that it's mercy killing, much like you're killing an animal? Well, we have modern pain-killing medications today that offer dying patients relief. And so avoidance of pain is a reason for mercy killing really today is not an effective argument because of, of medical advancements. There, there, there are medications today that can offer dying patients relief. And so that really is not a medical argument anymore that, that can be made. L- listen to what hospice has said. Hospice is a, national, is a wonderful national organization. And through a vote of their delegates on November the 8th of 1990, they stated, quote, the National Hospice Organization rejects the practice of voluntary euthanasia and assisted suicide in the case of the terminally ill. Hospice uses sophisticated methods of pain control and symptom control that seek to enable patients to carry on alert, pain-free living so their last days may be spent with dignity, end quote. That is from the National Hospice Organization. So, saying there's no quality of life, uh, it's only uh, all, all pain, that really is not an effective argument today in the, in the argument of euthanasia. So just to summarize, as our society progresses toward a culture of death, you're going to hear more and more of the so-called right to die, that become an, an obligation to life. For example, anyone who believes they're a burden to someone may take their life or a burden to society or they're in pain that they can take their life. You're going to hear that more and more. But Christ says, choose life. God knows exactly the moment a person should die. He knows that better than we do, even though we may know it better than Him. He knows it better than us. And so God says, choose life. Life is valuable from the very beginning to the very beginning ending. So my belief on the subject of assisted suicide, very simple. I believe in the sanctity of life from the moment of conception until the moment of natural death when God finally says it's time for a believer to go home to be with Him. Well, I hope this has helped you in answering some of the questions. And again, like I said earlier in the podcast, this is, these are just some very 
basic answers to these questions. If, if you want to follow up more, please feel free to send me an email. I'd be delighted to hear from you uh, and, and discuss any of these, these topics further. Hope you'll join us on the next podcast coming up as I talk about more questions that people wonder in the faith about the Bible, and we'll answer more of those you know, on Authentic. Thank you for joining me today. I'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to Authentic with Dr. Greg Ammons. Join us next time for a new podcast whenever we discuss various aspects of the Christian life, relating theological truths from God's Word to practical ways to live for Jesus Christ on a daily basis in a real, genuine, and authentic way. Mm -hmm.